This past Wednesday, I was leading the Growing in Grace writing class here at First Presbyterian, and one of our writing prompts during that gathering was to write a letter to someone or something. You could write to your younger self, your future self. You could write to a family member, a friend. You could write to God. You could write to your dog. I wrote to my childhood home, 543 Chisholm Trail, Wyoming, Ohio. I wrote about all kinds of memories in that house. I asked the house if it remembered when my knee punctured one of its doors on a particularly spectacular dunk over one of my brothers in our indoor playset. And then I shifted into the space where the, the house became kind of this metaphor for my, my family. And I, I wrote about this time that the garage caught fire. And it was a metaphor I began to realize for my parents' divorce and how things were never the same. I didn't mean to go those places. Didn't have that on the radar that morning, that week. None of it in the least. Well, after 10 minutes of all of us writing our letters, we then went around and shared our letters with one another. And when it came my time, something unexpected happened. I felt my face start to fill with this tingling sensation as I read the words about watching that fire from the street. This sense of of loss as I attended to that which I could not control. And when I found I could, couldn't read the last sentence of the piece I'd just written aloud, it became obvious what this tingling sensation was. Tears. Tears from somewhere I didn't know was there. Somewhere that was not on my mind, again, in the least that morning or or before, but flooding my face, breaking my voice. Ask those who were in the class that day. It took everything within me in a very long pause for me to pull together the ability to read that final sentence. I find in our society we don't care to talk much or think much about grief. In fact, if you saw ahead of time that that this Sunday sermon had a focus around this theme, I imagine the thought crossed your mind, maybe this is one to skip. Kind of a downer. I would have thought that. (laughs) And when we do talk about grief, we sometimes talk about it as this thing that we we need to get past, get beyond, leave over there, or, or perhaps even not really acknowledge which is in some ways, I think, where our story begins to pick up in 2 Samuel. Uh, Before the part that Babs read, a messenger arrives to King David, very hastily tells him uh, that um, King Saul, this King Saul who really started to hate David, and Saul's son Jonathan, best friends with David, uh, they're both dead. As proof, this messenger has brought Saul's crown and the band Saul would wear around his arm as a sign of his kingship. Without going into all the details of the interchange between David and this messenger uh, that happened in the second Samuel reading, it's rather clear this messenger probably expects to benefit from being the messenger. He assumes David's going to be pleased to hear this news. I mean, yes, they're dead, but now finally you have a chance to be king. Here's, here's the crown. Here, here's the moment you have been waiting for. In the face of tragedy, in the face of death, in the face really of loss of any kind, how often it can happen that quite quickly a very shiny thing is placed before us. 
Ah, but though she died, how, how good it is you no longer are the caretaker. Ah, but, but though you lost the job, how good it is that you have all these other opportunities you can now explore. Ah, but though the storm damaged this, that, and so much, how good and all the better we shall make this. It's not that the shiny thing isn't true or won't be true. I mean, David will wear the crown. He will be king. But neither then nor now have humans been mere machines who can or should just flip a switch where it's just, oh, here's this loss, but now here's the next thing. Even Jesus, right? Jesus, who himself is the good news of life and life eternal. When he hears the good news that his friend Lazarus has died, there is not this, uh, you just wait. That guy's coming back. You wait for the glorious promise of God that's about to be made known. Jesus wept. David and those with him immediately tear their clothes. They, they mourn, they fast, we read. Then we also read David has the whole of Israel learn this extended psalm of lament that, that you heard Babs read. What we begin to see in this scene is that for David and for his people, there seems to be some sort of known rhythm, known liturgy for how you deal with loss as a people. The tearing of the clothes, the fasting, the, the shared song of, of lament. And actually, some of you know, eventually what grows out of Judaism is a whole ritual and, and liturgy around the grieving process. It's, it's a liturgy that includes sitting Shiva. Right, referring to the Shiva seven, referring to the seven days after burial where, where those who are, are mourning stay in the house and, and mourn and the, and the community of faith comes alongside them in the house and sit there and they mourn, reflecting Job and his friends sitting in silence with him after Job lost everything and doing so for seven days. After that, there is a 30-day period of mourning called Shloshim. Where certain things are done and not done so as to honor this grieving process. And that comes out of a portion of a woman who's grieving in Deuteronomy in these 30 days. Then beyond that, there's actually a, a full year of mourning. A period that is designed specifically for those mourning uh, the loss of a parent. And in that time of the year, there's this particular prayer of praise called the Kaddish. That mourners are to say twice a day. Magnificent. Uh, magnif uh, magnified, sorry, and sanctified, may God's great name be. A prayer of praise, not because you feel deeply that praise yourself or even trust that praise, but because the idea is the praise is still true and maybe one day it will help anchor you to believe it deeply again. Notably, the saying of this prayer twice a day requires a quorum of 10 other adults in the room with you. Which is to say, the one who is mourning must then go to synagogue twice a day, and so, much so must ten others from the community go to say this prayer. As an aside, there are fascinating articles you can read online about all the ways different parts of Judaism navigated the COVID realities where this mourning gathering could not happen. There's a lot of details we could explore, but the point is this. This full liturgical calendar for grieving in all these various stages and forms, it makes two things clear. Grief is fundamentally a communal endeavor for people of faith. 
We see it even all the way back in our passage with David. And grief takes time. Much as we want to cling to the shiny silver lining and, and brush past the, the, the rest, it just takes a lot of time. And, and even so, those tears can and will sit half a millimeter away and they will be unlocked without our permission if, if just the right smell or taste or song or photo comes along. And even while much good and much resiliency has come of these pandemic months, absolutely, we have to also admit we have known much loss. Loss of life, loss of a job, loss of special events or graduations or or sacred traditions, loss perhaps of peace in the household, Loss of health, maybe loss of relationship, loss of fellow congregants alongside whom we've worshipped in this very space. And insofar as any of those are true for us, then we must also recognize that, that for all the excitement of this season, the seeing friends and, and, and family and, and, and different church events starting to come together, for as much as all that's beautiful and true, we must also recognize that we're hardly out of what would be called a very natural grieving period. And that's okay. Blessed are those who mourn. That acknowledgement may prepare us a bit more to appreciate David's psalm of grief in 2 Samuel. We won't look at all of it. Uh, Certainly we hear the the mourning and deep sadness of his words, but we'll just point two things out. One, this lament has some rather raw language, doesn't it? Right off the bat even. We hear David throw a curse down upon the enemies of Israel. Let there be no dew or rain upon your bounteous fields. Reminding us that one of the more visceral ways that our grief is made known is through anger. I remember I was serving as an associate pastor in a congregation in Atlanta some years back, and a congregant comes uh, literally bursting through the office door and said, who's in charge of the sign out there? He was talking about the sign the church had put up advertising one of the services of worship. Uh, Buildings and grounds put up the sign. Oh, past the buck, huh? Did you drive by that sign this morning? Yeah, yes. Well, then you must have noticed it looks terrible. Are you going to do something about that? Before he lets me have a chance to respond, does no one care how this church looks, he goes. Uh, Apparently, the pastor is too busy to take care of lowly tasks like fixing the sign. I'm feeling lost. Honestly, I don't remember if I bumbled out words or not, but, but, but he just leaves. An hour later, I get an email. Still going about this, this upsetting sign ordeal. And, and then he ends the email with the sentence, I'm going to tell everyone I run into about your arrogance. <laughs> a week or so later, we actually had a really amazing reconciling conversation. Uh, a lot of prayer before that. Uh, and also before that... <laughs> A lot of tail spinning on my part. What had I done? What had I not done? What? 
I really had no idea what was going on with the sign. Um, and, and a mentor of mine asked me, he said, Bobby, do you think it was that church sign most fundamentally that has him this upset? I mean, this, uh, the, the, it takes time to show up the office, blow through, leave, write an email of that length and that caliber. And What he was getting at is that perhaps it was this longtime member who had poured his heart into the church and the church's well-being, wondering if anyone was going to carry that on when he was gone. Wondering if all that he had poured into it meant anything. Wondering, perhaps, if anyone still noticed him and all of his brokenness. Perhaps, my mentor was suggesting, perhaps the anger was an expression of grief. I wonder if we took notice of where we have ourselves grown angry in some recent days. And is it possible that, that any part of that, maybe even much of that, but, but any part of that is a grieving because, in fact, we have known loss. We're in the midst of loss. David makes clear that, that one way grief is manifest is anger, and, and, and God can take the raw honesty. Blessed are those who mourn and all the varieties of mourning. Along with his sadness, his anger, there's one other notable aspect I want to underscore for us this morning. David's grief, I think, offers us a hint of what is possible when Jesus does meet us in that weeping and walks that long road with us. Amid this swirl of tears and anger and heartache, we hear also these words from, from, from David. They, speaking of Saul and Jonathan, they were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions, beloved. Saul, he writes, clothed you, speaking to the women of Israel, with crimson and luxury who, who, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Speaking of Jonathan, greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. In other words, even in this raw moment of, of, of grief and anger, we hear the first expressions of gratitude for who these men were. And so we begin to see just the first hint of where this grief could yet go. One of the books I most appreciate when it comes to grief, it was written in the mid-90s. It's entitled Tracks of a Fellow Struggler Living and Growing Through Grief by uh, a pastor, John Claypool. It's a book, a compilation, really, of just four sermons he preached on grief as he navigated his eight-year-old daughter, uh, Laura Lou, getting cancer and then dying from it two years later. Three sermons were given before she died, and, and one was given 18 months after she died. And, and near the end of this sermon that he preached 18 months after she died, he begins to speak of what he calls the, the, the road of gratitude. And he says this amidst uh, still plenty of untold heartache and confusion and hurt. I'm here to testify that this, the road of gratitude, seems to me to be the best way down the mountain of loss. I do not mean to say that such a perspective makes things easy. 
or it does not. But at least it makes things bearable when I remember that Laura Lou was a gift, pure and simple, something I neither learned nor deserved nor had a right to. Earned nor deserved nor had a right to. And when I remember that the appropriate response to a gift, even when it is taken away, is gratitude, then I am better able to try and thank God that I was even given her in the first place. Or, as a theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once observed in a very similar vein about gratitude's power, gratitude transforms the torment of memory of good things now gone into silent joy. One bears what was lovely in the past, not as a thorn, but as a precious gift deep within, a hidden treasure of which one can always be certain. Gratitude transforms the torment unto joy. It is true, rarely do we want to confront or, or, or walk through grief. Far more appealing, right? Stuff it down, set it aside, just get past it, maybe just take the next shiny thing, hold that, and largely just don't, don't want to go there. But Jesus wept. And Jesus is faithful to meet us in that extended space of grief's journey. He meets us in that long, holy Saturday that is inevitable between the loss of Good Friday and the resurrection of Easter Sunday. And what we discover in that most necessary time of Holy Saturday is that, is that grief's gift is that it can, it can awaken us to a profound level of gratitude. For we were given something in life that was worthy of such an ache. In time, actually, grief can awaken us to the very heart of our faith. That every good thing that, that we've had, everything we are, all that we've been given, it's all a gift. Not earned, not accomplished, not deserved. All of it is God's grace in Jesus Christ made known in abundance. A gift through and through. Blessed are those who mourn, for they slowly, surely, truly will be comforted. Amen.